Welcome to We've Been Had, a song-by-song walk through the songs of Uncle Tupelo. I'm Keith Pilly. And I'm Chad Cook. We're coming at you here from the uh, flight path in South Minneapolis. There's also a dog in the room you might hear. We are working our way through No Depression still. Tonight we'll be hitting uh, Outdone, Train, and Life Worth Living. Before we get into that, though, there's one thing I wanted to ask you about that's like always stuck out to me about about Uncle Tupelo. Like, I guess I'm surprised this hasn't come up. Do you know of any like Uncle Tupelo folklore? Other than driving around in a van and drinking cheap beer? Well, I mean, that's uh, that's a good example. That's, but that's, I guess, mostly what I know. Yeah. But, uh, so like, yeah, just like stories about like, yeah, did you hear about the time, Tweety, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I guess most of the stories I know are, are about them growing up, like meeting in yeah. grade school or junior high, because one of them, and I can't remember which one was which, but one of them liked the Ramones and the other one liked the Sex Pistols. Yeah, that's I, that exact story is one of the, like, it's just, it's weird to me that like this band, there aren't that many other bands I like that have like these stories that people tell each other about, you know, like, yeah, they, they you know, they were childhood friends because one liked you know, what I've heard that story with like different variations of those two bands. You know, it's always two punk bands, but yeah, I mean, um, it's it's really impressive that you can take three people from a relatively <laughs> unknown town in Illinois and turn it into something like this. Yeah, the other uh, the other Uncle Tupelo folktale that I just like. There's no way this is true, but this. I remember this being told to me like in total dead earnest, like the person telling me this believed it was true that there was, you know, there was a replacement show in St. Louis and uh, Paul Westerberg was just too shit faced to finish. And so passed out in the middle. I can't hardly wait. And a young Jeff Tweedy jumped up on the stage, grabbed the mic and finished the song. So first two <laughs> parts of that story, totally plausible. Yeah. Um, maybe, but like you think of all the concerts you've been to where like the lead singer has turned over the mic to someone else. And at least for me, each time it's been awful. Yeah. It's like, uh, do you remember that Matthew sweet show we went to first half where he had like diarrhea? Right. Yeah. In the middle of the show. Yeah. And, uh, and so they're like, Hey, does anybody know any Matthew sweet songs? And some clown gets up there and just butchers the hell out of, I don't know, sick of you or something like that. Yeah. I've just never seen it. I've never seen it like kind of move into that hero territory. Yeah. It's it's like you take the mantle. (laughs) Well, that's, and that's, that's the thing I love about that story. Like it's patently bullshit, but it's also patently there to like transfer the mantle. It's, Mm. uh, it's kind of like journey having that, finding that lead singer and like the Philippine lounge circuit that, that like just nails all the Steve Perry parts. And that's, I mean, like that guy took the mantle. Like yeah, he, that's legit and awesome. Yeah, I don't know. I just I wanted to get I wanted to get those stories off my chest. But should we uh, should we kick in and yeah. So I hate to be the guy that always brings up the weird factoid about the tabs, <laughs> but did you did it strike you that this one is like? And I don't know where you got your lyrics, but this one's like, ride or die. it's like, uh, it's like the dream of the nineties. It's like the Portlandia, the dream of the nineties yeah. is still alive. Yeah. The signature line has a, an REM quote and B in like ASCII text border, yeah. which 
like I don't know how much more '90s you could be. That like, is like that's that's the calling card for me. Literally, the first thing, my first experience of the internet was all text REM pages. John B. Carroll, who did this tab, like he might have been OG. You know, I, I've probably read his work before. <laughs> if he's related to Jim Carroll, I hope so. I'm just I'm going to choose to believe that. Oh, well, the song itself, what, uh, what's your stance on outdone? See, I had never, I'd never really realized this before, but in the very beginning, uh, there's, there's like a, there's an acoustic guitar yeah. that's finger picked over this, like just low level electric guitar Yeah, that makes like this kind of cool, fuzzy sonic background at the beginning of the song, Yeah, which I think, I think does a really good job of like setting the tone for the, for the rest of it. I think it, it, I was thinking about that too. And with this one, they're back into the big riffs and pauses. And at this point, like that being, you know, the extent of their bag of tricks kind of early on, it starts to feel a little like, well, what other tricks you got? And so I wonder if they didn't mess with the intro just to like differentiate this a little bit from the other songs where that's going on. Most of the other songs that are like that too are these really straight mixes where it's just one electric, maybe an overdub solo and then bass and drums, you know, and this is produced enough that they, they it had to be a conscious choice that they're like, we're going to do most of these just live style, but this one we're going to build up. Yeah. I wonder if they, I wonder if they thought of that or if the producer thought of that. Yeah. It, it's one of those like subtle tricks that you don't always pick up on, but it really, it really works here. I feel like it's a, it's a good addition. I did I did pull out one note that I found in an article that I wanted to run by you and get your thoughts on. What do you got? So this is from the Chicago Sun-Times. And uh, they say that Uncle Tupelo sounds like Bob Mould fronting Soul Asylum on a sped-up version of a Graham Parsons song. <laughs> Which, I mean, props for hitting, like, you know, two out of the three most influential Minneapolis acts yeah. in the description. Uh, but I was just curious. So I was trying to unpack that. That's, yeah. Like, so Bob, I guess for me, Bob Mold fronting Soul Asylum is kind of a weird concept because, like, they're kind of similar. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I can't be objective about Bob Mold. Um, you know, like, he's just so tied up in my idea. Like, my musical aesthetics are kind of built around him. But... It's hard for me to imagine him fronting any other band because just what he does is so distinctive. And so like, I don't, you know, he and, and Jay Farrar is also really distinctive, but they're really different things. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't compare their voices particularly much. I, I don't know where they got Soul Asylum for that. That's, that's a weird choice. So I think they were, I think what they're looking for is like a, it's like a straightforward rock and roll type band. Yeah. Uh, you know, Cause Bob Mould has kind of that, three-piece punk sound. Yeah. Soul Asylum has more of that kind of sort of straight-up rock and roll printer yeah. sometimes playing guitar. You've got another guitar player. Yeah, that makes sense. That... I mean, it could have been... I think you could have just as easily said Bob Mould fronting the Heartbreakers. <laughs> the slowed-down version of a of a Grand Parsons song. But maybe they're trying to, trying to go like sequentially. Yeah. Like late 80s early nineties. I don't know. So when music writers do that, do you think that's a useful way to talk about music? 
Yeah, it, I guess if you know the people they're talking about. Yeah. It, often though, I think that it it comes off as just being kind of douchey. Here are some bands I know. Right, like let me lay this on you. Yeah. It's like, and they're always, you know, a lot of times they're really obscure bands. Yeah. So like that's frustrating to me. Yep. But I mean, in this case, I think most people that would be conversant with Uncle Tupelo would at least know of. Maybe this is my Minneapolis bias, but but would be at least aware of Soul Asylum and Graham Parsons. Yeah, that's a weird thing. I really wonder now knowing Graham Parsons is just kind of, you know, at least in the circles we roll in, like everybody knows Graham Parsons. Yeah, you, know, you, you talk to anyone around 40 who has been into, you know, paying attention to music to one level or another through the 90s. Like that's just, it's given. But I don't know in the 90s if, you know, in 1990, I don't know if people knew who he was outside of like a handful of diehards. I mean, I certainly didn't. Same, yeah. That's a good question. I don't know. And that, I guess, to be fair to the Chicago Sun-Times, that article was written in the early 90s. So maybe that guy was a little bit ahead of his time. Right. It does both for our and Tweety do name check Graham Parsons a lot. So maybe that's where that's coming from. That makes sense. Yeah. But one of the the things that's kind of cool in this song is is sort of the continuation of the the theme of bleakness. Yeah, it is. (laughs) <laughs> so that's that's actually I, I feel like i'm a little more negative than you on this song like to me i feel like there's nothing here if you wanted to come up with the generic no depression song i think it'd be this one like there's nothing on this that other songs aren't doing you know so there's the stop start riff and pause there's the bleak worldview um i mean you're right that it's just it's really just continuing a trend but so i guess i disagree a little bit i think that you know, when you're that age in your early 20s, um, when you think about the lyric, there's too many people trying too hard not to be outdone. Like, you know, you're still trying to kind of find yourself in life and you've got people that you feel like are, I don't know if you want to call it social climbing or yeah. climbing the corporate ladder. And it's just, it's kind of frustrating when you don't feel, at least for me, like I didn't mm. feel like I really fit into any of those camps. So that kind of, you know, tr- people trying too hard not to be outdone really spoke to me. Yeah. Yeah. It is a pretty good observation for, you know, a 19 year old or however old he was at the time. It also has the obligatory reference to liquor. Of course. That's right. Some people turn to tomorrow and some a bottle of wine. <laughs> Better that than a whiskey bottle. Yeah. I wonder, do you th- what do you, th- what do you think? Like, is that, is the, is that they just like just like the it kind of rhymes with mind sort of? I think so. Yeah, I, I, that is kind of the 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 tamest drinking they talk about on the album. Right. It's like you know, let's go, let's go, well, maybe go out for a nice dinner, share yeah, a bottle of wine, get a bottle of wine. It just doesn't. It doesn't really fit with the jam econo ethos, right? Yeah. Like, like you know, you should be you should be thinking about something that's that's got a little more bang for your buck. Yeah, you want to be getting Mickey's. Yeah, no, I had that line flagged too. Like, and it, it's interesting. So when we talked about whiskey bottle, uh, you pointed out that the the bit about whiskey bottle over Jesus, you know, kind of reads like they're not saying this is they're not they're not saying that should be your hierarchy for dealing with the world. That's just what they're observing that people in Bellevue are doing. This kind of reads the same way to me. Like some people turn to tomorrow in a bottle of wine. Or and some a bottle of wine, you know. So like, the, 
You know, again, they're not talking about themselves. They're just saying, like, well, looking around the streets, you know, we've got optimism and we've got drunks. Yeah, it's it's sort of a binary system, I guess, in, <laughs> in the Uncle Tupelo worldview. That's you know, it's good that they've got that variety. Just out of curiosity, did you flag this for your ongoing grammar assault? Uh, we'd we'd be fools or lion. I okay, no, I did not catch that one. Where's where is that? That's, so it's. Uh, Saying, take a look around, tell me everything's just fine. From what I can see now, we'd be fools or lying. Okay. Yeah, that's very not great. But the thing is, for me, that's kind of lost in the shadow. I actually think the end of this song is like the apex of Jay Farrar's assault on the English language. Like the, the thing that made me start noticing it is at the end, he's kind of like sing speaking. I've noticed that this gets transcribed a few different ways, depending on which site you look at. Uh, but I'm going, this is, this matches what I think I hear. Look at him saying, they say, take the leap from the common heap. First look around past the college grounds where people aware of more than themselves. They care. I, I mean, like, honestly, how do you parse that? How do you, how do you get meaning out of that? Yeah. So like at its face, it, it doesn't make a ton of sense. People aware of more than themselves. They care. Yeah. Like, Jay, I so I mean I honestly I have literally for decades been trying to figure out if by that he's trying to call out college students for being self-absorbed, or if he's praising them for you know caring about people other than other than themselves. I I can't tell what he's trying to say there. I I guess think the most charitable read is that outside of the college grounds. People need to to be a little more open-minded and self-aware. But he could be saying that, you know, like your college bubble is not the real world. So that's what I always, that's what I always read it as. And so the, another thing we talked about previously, like I, you know, we we're talking about the town I grew up in and I was saying that there was like this hard split of uh, the little bubble of the campus and then like, People, the townies, at least on my end of town, hated the campus. And so if I'm reading this and he's taking a shot at the campus, I'm probably projecting my own experience of people hating the campus. It's kind of the, you got any more bright ideas, college boy? (laughs) Exactly. I'm not 100% sure. I believe that Tweedy did a couple of years of undergrad. I don't know if Farrar did at all. So I, I don't think that he's like... Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know what kind of scores are being settled. I do like the I do like this and this is totally the lazy trick that I would use if I was transcribing the tab. At, at one point it just says A something. <laughs> hey, that's just honesty. <laughs> it's very refreshing. It's a it's like if you look at the Watergate transcripts, there's just all these sections where there's brackets and it says unintelligible. <laughs> it's right, garbled. Yeah. <laughs> you know, same here too many people trying too hard i don't know i i hate to say it but i just i don't have a ton to say about this one yeah it's not a i, I guess it's uh I, i'm not willing to go to bat for it as much <laughs> as i originally thought i was fair enough all right well, let's take a break and come back <laughs> They again open with a uh, a riff and 
a little mess with the time signature. Yeah. These guys definitely felt like they had a formula that worked for them. Yeah, man, when you're mining gold, you don't stop mining, Keith. Very true. Were you struck at all by how young Tweety sounds in this song? Yes, God, yes. So, like, I don't know why, but for some reason that makes it better for me as sort of a protest song because yeah. it's it's sort of like the like slaughterhouse five right like yeah. he's this kid singing about how he has to maybe go to war or, or yeah. just sort of trying to process all these different emotions i was thinking the same exact thing that like you know i i don't know how much of this is supposed to be him and how much is supposed to be a character he's assuming but either way this like you know kind of untrained raw voice sells it really like way better than than it would if he came in you know swing singing the way he eventually learns to so there's an interesting quote from that same sun times article i don't know if you saw that from tweety and he said this is an awful time to be 23 in america besides the economy the new conservative attitudes and the bleak environmental future now we've got to worry about going to war as well so, you know, reading that and then listening to this song, like they sort of go hand in hand, like yeah. to, to help explain his mindset. Well, it's a, a thing. I, I like this song a lot. Um, one thing that really hits me, I remember in 1990, um, I specifically remember being in a car or, or actually in, in a junkie pickup because I'm country strong um, <laughs> with a friend of mine and we had the radio on and they started talking about the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. And uh, you know, cause like that was just going down then. And you know, we're 17 ish year old kids and we just started talking about how freaked out we were they're like, Oh my God, they're going to, we're going to war. They're going to bring back the draft. We're going to, that's such a vivid thing to me that like, I, I just, I love that this song exists because it's, same thing, same time period. Uh, you know, I I was trying to track down the dates, and I guess this would have been recorded a few months before that happened, but it's it's close. So I guess I was wondering if, you know, because both of us grew up in the Midwest, and so, like, you kind of have that common experience of driving your car and being stopped by a train yeah. and having it go by for what seems like forever. Yep. I wonder if you grow up on the East coast or the West coast, if people are like, I, I just, I can't relate to that. I, why, <laughs> why would he be sitting in his car watching a train? I wonder that that's a good question. I'm I, sorry. Watching, waiting on a train, watching, waiting on a train. So did it jump out to you too? There's also a really good bottle rocket song called waiting on a train. Yeah. Um, and I've just always wondered, is that, you know, I mean, people love to write songs about trains anyway, but like one of the, you know, it's like the second or third line of the song. He says waiting on a train and that's the title of the bottle rocket song and pausing that. I'm not sure. I don't want to take the assumption that everyone listening has heard of the bottle rockets. You probably have, if you care enough to listen to this, if you don't, they're another Belleville band or I'm sorry, they're from Festus, Missouri. Um, but they're very uncle Tupelo adjacent and their main creative guy, Brian Henneman was kind of, a utility almost member of Uncle Tupelo and then a utility almost member of Wilco. Kind and of a mentor to them too, right? I like, think uh, so. He's a little bit older maybe? Yeah. So, I mean, like he had to have been exposed to this, but he probably played at shows where they played this like lots of times. 
Yeah, just to just to continue the train theme, uh, I was at a bottle rocket show uh, at was it the four hundred bar? That's it, it. It must have been the four, yeah, it was four hundred bar, and the bass player for the bottle rockets. It was packed, and it was a really raucous environment. And the bass player is like, "Man, I feel like I'm in Grand Funk Railroad." <laughs> Was that was that the same show where Hanneman Hanneman was asking for uh, tequila? Yeah, the Sammy Hagar the same, tequila. Yeah, yeah. That, indeed, that ruled. <laughs> yeah, and so it, I actually like. I spent a while thinking about this today, like the the contrast between the two waiting on the train socks. Like, I like the Uncle Tupelo one a lot. I think this is the best thing Tweety does on this album. But I actually, I think I like the Bottle Rockets take on waiting for a train a little bit better because in theirs it's also a guy's stuck waiting and he's just thinking about what a failure he is um because he can't meet his responsibilities i don't know i guess i don't want to say that that's a better topic but i feel like he like sells it slightly better but i mean it's like you know it's a 9.7 versus a 9.5 like they both they both really convey what it's like to sit and think and look at a train yeah, I mean, I almost I feel like that sort of not measuring up is sort of a theme with Bottle Rocket songs. Yeah, yeah, that's you know, okay, this is way far afield, but um, our friend Eric actually got to talk to Brian Henneman at a casino in I don't know if it's technically Omaha or Council Bluffs or the demilitarized zone in between. <laughs> But I remember him saying that he got to talk to Brian Henneman and he talked to him about playing on the first Wilco album and. Uh, He's the way Eric relates it. Henneman was actually kind of regretful about like, yeah, I didn't understand what they wanted to do. Um, if I'd understood it better, I probably would have been in the band, you know? So even that actually kind of fits into that same theme of like, well, there was a thing I could have lived up to and didn't. Yeah. Do you feel though? Like, I mean, Brian, for all intents and purposes, Brian Henneman was a member of the band. Yeah. It's uh, AM is, well, do you mean Wilco or uncle Tupelo? Or both. Uh, I guess, well, I guess Wilco, but Uncle Tuplo, because he played a lot on Anodyne, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and on AM, like just all the lead guitar is him just tearing it up. Were you, were you surprised to see Tweety name check Roger McGuinn? I love that line. I love that. Is it weird that he name checked him on an album, <laughs> the album that Graham Parsons didn't play on? Because I think, did Graham Parsons only play on Sweetheart of the Radio? I think so. It's just weird that he picked time, time, time. Yeah. Turn, turn, turn. I can't remember what the song's called. Turn, turn, turn. I think yeah. so. That That's the, maybe he's trying to say that that's a plausible song that would be on the radio while you're watching the train. Yeah, it could be that. It's kind of, it's kind of an homage to that, you know, country rock pioneer. Yeah. I, yeah. And it's such a specific thing that it makes me wonder if this song is, is relating. It, it feels like it almost has to have been like a, thing that he really experienced and like the the detail of that song feels like a thing that you'd be like well i remember hearing that and that really but i just i love actually like i've got it singled out that like most of the words most of the lines in this song are like these short declarative sentences stating facts and then he just goes off in this kind of loop about roger mcguinn seemed to reach me and like i don't know that just that that one kind of fanciful detail in in the middle of all the facts really sells it. So it, on your tab, is it Roger McGuinn seemed to reach me? Um, act- that makes a lot more sense than mine. What? Mine says oh. Roger McGuinn. 
Roger McGuinn, sing to each and everything. There is a time and a season. That's what mine says, too. I guess I've just, I've always heard it as seemed to reach me and didn't even, didn't even check these lyrics, but that's what, yeah. That seems to make more sense, right? Like, because you, at least for me, that, that was sort of my experience growing up was you'd, the only radio stations were top 40 and classic rock. So yeah. you kind of, how do you gravitate to your classic rock? And then I guess yeah. like, you know, butt metal, but <laughs> yeah. And some of it, you know, one or two of them will like land with you for some reason, but a lot of it doesn't. Right. Yeah. I, there's another, I think it's whatever, like, so if you just Google lyrics and Google on its results page, will try to show you lyrics. I, I don't know. Like, what its algorithm prefers for it's pulling up. But I noticed that the lyrics Google pulls up for this. They, whoever did that missed the Roger McGuinn reference. They, it, it, they transcribe it as like Roger McGovern or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. That Roger Roger McGovern. (laughs) He can really reach you. This is sort of a tangent, but. This is one of the interesting things about sort of my initial journey through Uncle Tupelo is that it sort of acted like a like a de facto Wikipedia. Yeah. So like they would mention Roger McGuinn and I'd be like, who the hell is Roger McGuinn? So yeah. you look that up and oh, he's in the birds. So you listen to a bird CD Yeah. and they talk about Graham Parsons and you listen to a Graham Parsons CD. I mean, now you have Spotify, I guess would be a better, yeah. would be a better example because you can kind of go down that rabbit hole of who influenced who and yeah. essentially could do that in one day. It's a lot more, it was a lot more complicated in 1992. But you had more chance to digest then if you know, like you have one bird's CD and like that's all you've got until the next time you get to Best Buy or wherever, like that, you're really going to absorb the hell out of that then. Yeah. And it's not like in 1992, they carried a shit ton of bird CDs. Yeah. You know, it's not like they had the full catalog there for you to peruse. Yeah. No, you're totally right. I mean, that was that that's one of one of the things I just love about my experience with Uncle Tupelo was like that, you know, they ended up being the conduit to just all kinds of stuff that that I, you know, that I've loved afterwards. I mean, you know, when we were speculating about how widely known Graham Parsons was, you know, like I am I'm, I'm sure that you know, that was the direct way in to him for both of us and like I don't know, once you're on that train you get a lot of good things. Yeah, so that Graham Parsons was a sort of a, a gateway to me for like cunt old country music. Yeah. Cause once that clicks for you, then you sort of, you're like, okay, you know, like I can listen to Hank Williams or yeah. I don't know, Buck Owens or somebody like that. I, you know, it's weird to me that I heard Graham Parsons and the flying breeder brothers way before I heard Buck Owens. Like it's nuts. Like, the degree of separation between Buck Owens and the Buckaroos and the Flying Burrito Brothers, like it's tiny. It's they could easily, they're doing so much the same thing. Like they could share a bill and no one would bat an eye ex- unless the Burrito Brothers had their nudie suits with naked women and marijuana leaves on them. I don't think Buck Owens would be down for that. Uh, <laughs> which, which, okay. And that's another weird thing. Cause like, you know, that guy, I don't know. All the, all the old country guys were, Drunken on speed, but somehow that's <laughs> got to draw the line here. somewhere. That's right. It's like Merle Haggard. Like you don't want this country overrun by damn hippies. 
he, he, as, he, as I'm doing lines of cocaine off yeah. the bathroom stall. I will not smoke marijuana in Oklahoma. <laughs> what else? Oh, well, so I was just going to ask, you know, I, I tried to drag us into that rabbit hole of um, the bottle rocket song about the train, but what is it with music and trains? Like, I think trains are kind of quietly, you know, not anymore, I guess. Nobody's writing songs about trains anymore. But in the 20th century, trains were like the low-key dominant thing in American music. Like, all kinds of old country songs are about trains. Um, Johnny Cash has a concept album about trains. Yeah, I mean, like, Johnny Cash never met a train song he didn't want to go and record. Like, you know, all these old blues songs are about trains. Uh, You know, there's the argument that uh, London Calling is the clash trying to grapple with American music. Um, The last song on it is about a train. Why the trains? What is it with trains? I don't know. Uh, It's a growing up in the Midwest. It was about the possibility of trains going somewhere else for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big thing. Like you kind of mentioned it in passing, but it is weird if you lived and I and still live in a small town in the Midwest, like a crazy big chunk of your life is dominated by like, is a train going through? Do I have to wait? My grandparents' house was like a block and a half from the train. And like, I just, I remember that the sound of trains would be like a thing you'd go to sleep to and you could hear the, you know, you'd hear the whistle and the ka-dunk, ka-dunk. And it was just weirdly soothing. Yeah. Now that you mention it, I mean, isn't there a Flying Burrito Brothers song called the Train Song? Yes. Trains. Yeah. Trains. I wish I had a. I wish I had a better, more compelling answer for why trains are so prevalent. I, you know, I, I also, I know that a band exists called Train, and I feel like that's that's where this ends. But I, I don't think they're a very good band. So. So I guess I get train confused with like those other like Creed. They may be totally different, but uh, no, I, I do the same thing. Like, like they're just like they're all sort of lumped into one. Just I don't know, pot of shit. Yeah, it's the most charitable way to put it is just not for me. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's that's probably the way I should say it. That's you know if if you want to make your podcast about the members of Train. <laughs> I support that. God bless you. As long as there's no music by train <laughs> in the podcast. Oh, jumping way back. There's one other thing I wanted to run by you. There was a review on Pitchfork of the reissue of this album. Um, so I think the reissue was around 2000. The review was from then. And the guy, we, we bounced on this earlier about um, Tweety's like kind of raw voice on this. The guy writing the review actually took the time to call Tweety out for faking his accent when he sang. Like, do you get that at all? No, but I mean, what accent is he trying to fake? Uh, s- Southern, according to this guy. Eh, I, I guess <laughs> I don't buy it, but. I, I just, I mean, it sounds like a guy from the southern part of the rural midwest talking like have you ever ever been to st louis like it's pretty far south that's i don't know i this is one of the challenges i guess i have with and this is this is the manifesto (laughs) segment of the show 
one of the challenges that I have with Pitchfork is there's always this like, I don't know. There's just this negative disposition about everything and everything's got to be bad. I think that was definitely the defining thing at Pitchfork in the, the two thousands and like the early chunk of this decade. Maybe I, I think they've gotten a ton better. I think now they've, you know, I, I don't know if like, well, I know that the writing pool has turned over a bunch and I think the editorial pool is, uh, you know, now I think it's just a place that has music writers and some of them are really good and some of them are, fine but it used to be this thing that yeah like the, there used to be this ethos of like we have to find something to talk shit you know or else we just ain't pitchforking you do they still have that arbitrary totally arbitrary numerical system where they're like this is a 8.2 to be honest i don't know because that, that always seemed like you were applying like a greater degree of precision than is yeah. possible to exist yeah that's that's a crock of shit Another rabbit hole here, but am I remembering it right that they like dropped it? The only 10.0 ratings they would drop were on Radiohead albums. I hope that's true. I don't know if that's, <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, yeah. but that, that would be just as arbitrary as anything else. Yeah. I I'm know. sure they gave Yankee Hotel Foxtrot a 10. Okay. We got to look this up for the next episode. We'll, we'll come back to this and revisit because that, that is an interesting thing. I mean, that's, you know, it's beyond the scope of the show, but it would be an interesting thing to look at the changing way that people reacted to Wilco as Wilco got out of the shadow of Uncle Tupelo. Because that was definitely a thing. Like, right. I remember I was, you know, I was at the peak of super fandom when Being There came out and uh, Rolling Stone reviewed it and their headline, like they were praising the album and they were saying like, Jeff Tweedy and co finally break out of the narrow uncle Tupelo legacy. And I'm just like, fuck you. <laughs> fuck you. That's not a fucking narrow legacy. Fucking God. <laughs> you know, I, but I mean, I, I was hoping your, your project was going to be a point by point refutation of every, <laughs> of every pitchfork review <laughs> ever done. <laughs> That's going to be our next show. That's right. One minus pitchfork. <laughs> the other side. That's not a bad idea. I uh, really hope that I'm right about that and we don't have to, I don't have to like <laughs> do a pitchfork apology <laughs> podcast because that, that's really going to hurt my pride. Fair enough. Uh, should we take a break? If we, yeah, let's do All right. And all right, we're back. Um, we are going to do some looking for life worth living. 1990. 1990. Was life worth living in 1990? Uh, I mean, yeah. I, mean, I think well, I was in like the ninth grade, 10th grade. Life's worth ninth living grade. then, yeah. So yeah, yeah, life was good. Fair enough. I was probably about five feet tall, but <laughs> that's, you know. Unless you uh, you play the cards you're dealt. Life is better when you're short. Let's be honest. Um, so this song, you know, it, you this is another one where it comes in spare and terse. You know, you got Farrar doing some very weighty lines. I, I feel like this this song is so similar in a lot of ways to whiskey bottle that like I conflate the two in my head a lot and we'll like assign lines from one to the other. If I'm just thinking about it. 
Well, you can think of this one as being sung for the broken spirited man. <laughs> I love it that he does that. I, I legitimately love that he starts out the song by just laying out like, here's who I'm repping for. Um, it's, it's almost like the man in black, right? Yeah, totally. That's, that's kind of what I get from it is, you know, this yeah. is why we're the black. I think you're totally right. It also, it sounds a little bit like a toast to me, which is interesting because when we were talking about um, before I break with the the bit about here's to waking up, you know, like there seem to be a lot of rhetorical flourishes with toasts on this album, which makes sense because there's a lot of drinking on this album too. I feel like this is a better toast though than, you know, may you wake up drunk in a ditch. (laughs) Like, like that sounds like kind of an F you like that's not, I feel like, you know, this song is for the broken spirited man is a little more uplifting than. Yeah. It's at least, it's at least inclusive. I don't know. On the flip side though, with your experience in small towns, when you you just imagine random small town bar going guy, uh, the broken spirited man, would he be into Jay Farrar saluting him? Well, I mean, there might be a sample size problem because most (laughs) of the, I mean, most of the small town bars that I've been to, the people are really into like Hank Williams Jr. Yeah. Or like, uh, I, I don't know, like uh, really bad classic rock. Yeah. Um, so I doubt they've heard of Uncle Tupelo. <sighs> it, it might be a tough sell because it's like, you know, it's kind of hard to put in a box. Like, what is this? Yeah. You know, parts of it sound like... Uh, like country music, parts of it sound like punk. Well, it's an interesting, yeah, like if you carry out the thought experiment, if if I were to go into the Blue Ribbon on uh, Main Street in Blair, Nebraska, and just pick a dude and say like, Jay Farrar is singing a song for you, and he says, who's Jay Farrar? Um, I think if you say, well, he's in a band that sounds like uh, Hank Williams, but really sped up and aggressive, I think that would go over pretty well. You could just as accurately say, oh, well, he's the lead singer of a band that sounds kind of like a cross between, you know, maybe the uh, Minutemen and Dinosaur Jr. or maybe Bob Mould fronting Soul Asylum with some Graham Parsons. And if you tried either of those combos, like, I think you'd just be, at best, you'd get a, what the fuck are you talking about? You get, like, kind of like ZZ Top. <laughs> okay, I, I I'm... <laughs> I'm having kind of a ZZ Top awakening lately, to be honest. I awesome. think they're they're really good. Yeah, no, ZZ they're Top's a great good. band. Um, no, but I mean, so what I'm getting at, like, I I think that I think that all these songs were written sincerely. You know, I I think yeah, at this point it's mostly Farrar, but somewhat Tweedy. I think they're legitimately trying to speak for people they see. I'm just never I'm never a hundred percent sold that they're part of the community that they're trying to rep for. But maybe that's, that doesn't matter. That's a fair point. You feel like they're the, that era equivalent of the, the bros wearing trucker hats. And- yeah. That's, you know, I don't know. We, we, we keep doing this a lot tonight of saying like the charitable and the not charitable way to look at it. Like that would be the uncharitable way to look at it. And I, that might be justified, but, but I don't think it's definitive. Yeah, it, it, uh, I guess the thing that, that oh, it still confuses me is which side of this, like, solving your problems through alcohol they're actually coming <laughs> yeah. down on. Yeah. Like, when they say there's sorrow enough for all, just go in any bar and ask. Like, okay, the bar must be a very sad place. But then the next line is, 
with a beer in each hand and a smile in between all around's a world grown mean, which to me kind of sounds like they're like, yeah, it's a sad place, but you people know, are happy. Get a couple, get a couple beers and, you know, get your smile on. Yeah. So I, since you singled that out, I need, I, like, I think throughout the entire catalog of this band and all the associated bands, I think a beer in each hand and a smile in between is the best line anyone involved in this ever wrote. Cannot be top. That's imagery for you. <laughs> that's that's packing a lot into one image. Which uh, which song is it where they say I've earned my name and place on a bar stool? Looking for a way out. Looking for a way out. Which yeah. is also, I, I think that's one of their high water marks too. Yeah. If nothing else, they do a good job of capturing the the imagery of uh, of what it's like in a small town bar. I think that's quietly part of why that's part of the appeal of this band. I think that like they, just for whatever reason, both of them are really good at nailing some concrete part of the experience in a handful of words and just like sticking that pin into you and be like, no, it's like this and it's like this and. I think that's what makes it so powerful. Yeah. I uh, I also like the transition part that's in the bridge where it goes, where it, it does that kind of do, 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 do. Like yeah. that's, that just has a really, it's a really cool way to, me singing it monotone doesn't <laughs> probably do the justice that it deserves, but it uh, it is a cool, it's just a really cool effect. Well, it's, this is another, the production on this one is really interesting too, where it, so this is the, I didn't even realize this until today when I was scoping it out, but this is the second song on this very drum heavy album that doesn't have drums. You know, like if I think of this album, one of the things I think about is Mike Heidorn kicking ass, but this is the second song that he's just not on at all. This time I went back and actually listened to the demo version that was on the awesome. legacy edition. And there are drums on that. So there was like this conscious decision to take him out. Um, do you can you discount the chance that his drums were so ass that they had to remove them? <laughs> that is entirely possible. No, actually, I can discount that because yeah, no, Mike Heidorn, no, he's, he's awesome. He that's, delivers the goods. Uh, that was meant to be funny. <laughs> uh, no, but it's it's interesting. Like it starts out acoustic. They bring an electric in about halfway through. That's just like rails around and provides atmosphere. And then somebody's playing a mandolin. Um, I, I don't know. Like they put some thought into how to build this one up and it, it pays off. I wonder who the mandolin player was. I do too. And I feel like I swear to God, my CD copy of this that I got rid of had, it was like, you know, it was an early nineties pressing. Um, I think it had more, I know that it had like more complete liner notes, um, that aren't on other versions uh, that, I, I'm positive it listed out other musicians. So like, I think they, I think they recorded this at like Fort Apache. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if, if there's like a Fort Apache mandolin guy, like <laughs> this guy's the finest man- mandolin player in the tri-state area. That would make, yeah. <laughs> He's the hottest session mandolin player on the Eastern seaboard. That'd make a lot more sense. Like I- master, but faster. <laughs> Okay, pause. Um, <laughs> if you do not know the song Toolmaster of Brainerd by Trip Shakespeare, just hit pause, look that up on YouTube, and 
listen up to the best thing Minneapolis has ever done, including, you know, like that song's better than anything Prince did. It's better than anything Husker Du did. Yeah, just send us a brief note of how your life has changed after hearing that. (laughs) Who who are you three minutes later after hearing that? So one thing I was wondering, I I really like, you know, I I do like the way they kind of crafted this in the studio. I can't figure out how it wouldn't have been pretty boring live, though. You know, because there's like this slow build and adding of instruments that you can do really well in a studio. It's really hard to manage that live. Yeah, you kind of need you kind of need quiet to to get the full impact. Yeah, maybe they do it like uh, like stop making sense, like where they just <laughs> they just slowly build in. They bring people from other like off stage onto the stage. That would be fantastic. That would absolutely be the way to do it. Yeah, I don't know how you would bring them on though without making any noise. That would be a challenge, but ah, that's that's a solvable problem. The Talking Heads could do it. In I mean, what year was that? Eighty, eighty something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, technology had to have improved. It's a solved problem. Two part question: Do you agree that this is kind of like whiskey bottle version two point And if so, how do you feel it stacks up? I guess that's, I'm really begging the question there with the, the if so. It, well, yes. Answer to question one. I do think it's, it's similar to whiskey bottle. I, I mean, they both have, they both have some elements that I like. The last verse in here is like the, you know, like we're all looking for a life worth living, you know, like, yeah, I think, you know, we, everybody can relate to that. Yeah. You know, the, the next line, that's why we drink ourselves to sleep, is kind of a downer. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that differentiates the experience a little bit. You know, we're all looking for a life we're living. That's why we pray our souls to keep. So it's kind of a callback to that, you know, whiskey bottle over Jesus. Yeah. You know, not forever, not That also also puts a spike in uh, my theory that there isn't much religion in their originals. They're praying here. Yeah. Or do you think they're, think they're actually praying or well, do you think they're just sort of using that as a juxtaposition of a way to solve problems? Yeah. It, I could definitely hide and say it's a, it's a rhetorical figure. Yeah. No, I, I guess if I had to pick, I would probably pick whiskey bottle, but yeah. uh, life worth living is a really good song too. It's got that line. I love so with running, I, I God, I didn't scroll this far down until just now, but I love the note at the bottom of the uh, transcription on gumbo pages where Joe Rinkovich from the University of Virginia gives you a couple paragraphs here about how this is his favorite song and will be so be so for some time. He loves the moonshiner twist on the chords with the little finger on the third fret of the little E string. Okay, that's, yeah, that's a thing. Give it a try. It's a pain in the hand to get used to it first, but good exercise. Let him know if you have any cues. He'll throw in some Mando tabs soon. Yeah, so where the hell are my Mando tabs, Jack? <laughs> We've got his email address here. Let's, let's got things still valid? <laughs> I hope. I want to believe. So I guess... I guess the the problem with his like, I assume that's what if you scroll all the way to the top, there's the tab for the intro. Yeah, and you scroll down over the part where it just says F in quotation marks, yeah. and then it says with little effing. 
Is that what does that mean? I have no idea. That is a uh, that is non-standard guitar terminology. <laughs> work on your phrasing. Yeah. While you're doing that, while you're compiling my Mando tabs. I don't know, but I mean, like, on one level, like these old tabs are ridiculous, but like that's a pretty good sign of the devotion of the fan base that like not only did people in the nineties, you know, in the infancy of the internet, throw these tabs together, but then somebody else, like whoever it is that runs gumbo pages is still paying to rent server space to, yeah. uh, you know, to keep these pages up that we're pulling. So, I mean, this is pre functional internet. So, like most likely these people are listening to the songs and just figuring out what the chords are. Totally. Right? Like yeah. that's, they're just noodling around and trying to. I do have to say like not to no shots fired on the musicianship of uncle Tupelo at all, but uh, it is a, it is definitely a thing that all uncle Tupelo songs are like all of them all the way through the catalog are built around riffs that just kind of happen if you dick around with the simplest open chord forms um you know just again and again like if you make a g chord and mess with it a little bit you'll have you know you, you'll you'll stumble upon several uncle tupelo songs so like I, I if there's any band where it's not hard at all to just noodle around and figure it out this is the band that also makes them a great band to learn to play guitar on because you learn your basic chord forms and you know, it's nothing to elevate that into being able to play most of their songs, like at least the rhythm parts. So when I launch my Frank Zappa complete catalog <laughs> tablature, it's going to be more difficult. Very different situation. there. <laughs> yeah. That and your Beefheart project. That's going to be sweet. But no, I mean, like, that's actually, that was the thing I meant to mention in the first song, first episode. That, like, you know, way back when we were talking about our graveyard shift is it feels like three songs bolted together. It it literally is just, like, walking around with a D and G chord formation and, trans, you know, how you would transition. Like, that's how you get that riff. And then... What if you had an A and you went down to a G back and, you know, like, it's just all like if you're messing around with the easiest chords and like tried to do stud guitar, you'd come up with big chunks of the Uncle Tupelo catalog. It's probably why I'm not, uh, I'm not a stud guitar player. <laughs> but you could be. You just more focused on the mandolin at this point. <laughs> Fair enough. It would make your life worth living. Yeah, I'd. I feel like it would also drive my wife insane if I was like trying to learn to play the mandolin at home. Yeah, that would be, that would test a marriage. For me, honestly, my process of learning to play guitar was really liking Uncle Tupelo. And so having this like easy door in where all the songs are kind of inadvertently written to teach you to play guitar and then living alone, you know, so that there's no one to annoy as you stumble through that process. And, if you just do that and like sit in a guitar with your or sit with a guitar in your hands while you watch a lot of Seinfeld, you will come out of that knowing how to play guitar. Well, as your roommate for a number of those years, I feel I feel a little sad that you you te- you classify that as living alone. No, that but- was that 
I'd I'd come through the fire by then. Gotcha. So I got the I got the crap. The you'd already pr- you like honed your craft. Exactly. You were you were living with someone who played the guitar like a master, but faster, faster. by then. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> we are pretty far out in the weeds. Uh, got anything else on life worth living? No, uh, I think uh, I think that's it. Um, you know, I I guess I'd just be maybe I'll poll some people and see what they think about the because I'd be curious what other other people think about the the relationship with relationship of alcohol and Uncle Tupelo. Like, is it are they praising it? Are they are they offering it as a cautionary tale? Yeah. Are they are they doing some of both. Are they glorifying. They live in their. Are they are they walking the walk as they talk the talk? Uh, basically, yeah. rot rock rule. <laughs> yes. Uncle Tupelo and alcohol. <laughs> I, I think that'd be awesome if you pulled people around and brought some responses back. I will do that. Excellent. Uh, well, thanks for listening and sitting through us talking. Um, again, I am Keith Pilly. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Keith Pilly, K-E-I-T-H-P-I-L-L-E. And I'm Chad Cook. You can find me on Twitter at, at Cook6252 and potentially become one of my uh, 11 followers. <laughs> this is your chance to get in on the ground floor. That's right. It's a movement. Um, we would absolutely love to hear from you. If there's anything you like or don't like, you've got an opinion on uncle Tupelo and alcoholism. Please let us know. Um, I think we're a couple of dumbasses. Please, I guess. If that's your feedback, please direct it to JPR seven E at Virginia.edu. <laughs> Subject line. Where are my fucking Mando tabs? Um, uh, <laughs> If you dug the show, please, please tell people about it. You got to know somebody who's just like a really into Wilco and maybe they don't know the story behind. This is their chance. Yeah, they can uh, they can uh, learn the backstory. It's like a, what did they used to call that on the VH1? Behind the music. Behind the music. That's right. Yes. We're forcing our way behind the music. Uh, also, if you were to go to iTunes or Google Play and leave a review, I would appreciate the hell out of that. Um, you know, the algorithm-driven world we've got now, the more reviews there are, the more likely our show is to come up on search results if someone goes and searches for Uncle Tupelo podcast. Uh, right on. Thanks again, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon.